In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from, the, from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. Because you see, the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. uh, To speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know. Know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not one man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have made known to me what we have asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy, to the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel before the king in haste, and he said to him, I have found among the exiles of Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head are as you lay in the bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have um, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation you be ma- uh, the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts in your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you. And its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of the iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given whatever they dwell, um, has given whatever they, wherever they dwell, um, the children of man the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. 
another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of um, of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with, other, with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the kings of God, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. For just, uh, ju- just as you saw, a stone was cut out from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. On the 6th of November, 1925, the British economist John Maynard Keynes wrote a letter to his wife in which he said this, It is not right to sacrifice the present to the future unless we can conceive of the future in sufficiently concrete terms. I don't quite know why his wife needed to know that. Perhaps she was, you know, thinking of cancelling the Netflix or putting him on a diet or something like that. We can all grasp his point, though, can't we? The wise man doesn't make sacrifices in the present unless he knows they'll be worth it in the future. The wise investor doesn't sell his shares unless he knows some other company will soon be worth more. The wise football manager doesn't sell his star player unless he knows that some other player is soon going to perform better. The wise admiral doesn't scuttle all his ships unless he knows that some other weapon will soon be more effective for future warfare. To be wise, present sacrifice requires future knowledge. So how can God's way be wise in the land of Babylon. 
We saw last week that Daniel's story is set in the land of Babylon. Uh, But Babylon wasn't just the place where Daniel lived. It's where we all live today. It stands for the world in rebellion against God. And as exiles there, we feel daily the pressure to conform. Resisting that pressure is hard. It requires sacrifice. So how can it be worth it? How can it be wise? Daniel 2 contains a contest between two types of wisdom. It revolves around a dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Dreams of this kind are not something that we should expect to happen regularly to us today, but they were one of the ways that God used in the Old Testament era to reveal important things. We're told in verse 28 that this dream was given to reveal what will be in the latter days. It's about the future, the future of history. And the rest of the story describes the contest to interpret it. On the one hand, we find the wisdom of the world represented by the litany of experts in verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. In the ancient world, it was common for kings to employ such magicians to interpret their dreams and tell them things about what might happen in the future. Perhaps it seems a bit silly to us, a bit outdated. But just think about the city. I think I'm right in saying it almost its entire workforce makes its living trying to predict the future. I think that's how insurance works. And if I can get away with saying this, I'm not sure their methods of prediction are always that much more reliable. It was the Harvard professor of economics, John Kenneth Galbraith, who once said, the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. And it isn't just economics. The same thing happens all over our society, doesn't it? Professional influencers tell us which trends are going to be on the up, which are going to be on the down. Professional commentators tell us where they think the world is heading and how we might best prepare as a nation. Professional activists tell us where our culture is heading and how we can get our lives in line with it. Professional computer geniuses tell us which tech is coming soon and how it's going to transform the future. All these experts make the, wor- make the world and its wisdom look plausible. But Daniel 2 shows us where true wisdom lies. Not in the world, but in the God of the Bible. Because only he can reveal the future. And the future that he reveals is one where only his kingdom rules. Those are going to be our two points this evening. So firstly, only God can reveal the future. Like our own experts today, the Chaldeans in Nebuchadnezzar's court looked respectable. They had all the appearance of wisdom. You can, you can kind of imagine them walking into the king's chambers in their pinstripe suits, you know, clipboard in hand. Ah, oh, another dream, your majesty. Oh, let me fetch the tea leaves. Only this time the king has a rather nasty surprise up his sleeve. He doesn't just want them to interpret the dream. He wants them to tell him the dream. Verse 3. 
And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. These magicians, they were used to interpreting dreams. That was their bread and butter. As long as they kind of had some idea of what a dream was about, what its contents contained, they could have a good stab at, you know, what it might mean. They'd use their magic books and scrolls to sort of guess what a plausible interpretation could be. But to actually reveal the contents of a dream that they hadn't been told, that was way beyond their pay grade. They didn't get to the top for nothing, though, these magicians. And so they know how to handle a sticky situation. They try an age-old technique. Maybe you've tried this one at work. If you're in a meeting, someone asks you to do something you're not sure you can do, just pretend you didn't hear them and carry on. (laughs) Verse 7, they answered and said a second time, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will show the interpretation. Unfortunately for them, Nebuchadnezzar won't be fooled. He doubles down. Verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Now the magicians are really starting to sweat. You can almost feel their their feet shuffling awkwardly, can't you? Who does he think we are, magicians? Oh, wait, we are magicians. In the end, they've got no choice but to come clean. Verse 11, the thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Revealing the future is simply beyond them. And it's equally beyond our own experts today. Perhaps once they see which way the wind is blowing, they might make an educated guess about what might happen in the future. But to actually reveal the future the distant future in particular, the future of history before us. Now, that's way beyond their pay grade. Take uh, John Maynard Keynes as an example. He was one of the greatest economists who ever lived. Time magazine named him one of the 20, one of the 100 greatest statesmen of the 20th century. But in the same letter that he wrote to his wife that we started with, he made this rather bold prediction I draw the conclusion that assuming no important wars and no important increase in population happens, the economic problem whereby humanity has to work to make a living may be solved or at least be within sight of solution within a hundred years. 
well, we are about 100 years on from 1925. Do you still have to go to work? I know I do. Have there been any important wars since 1925? I think there might have been. Has there been an increase in the world's population? Just a small one. See, despite all their expertise, the the best wisdom that the world can offer can't actually reveal the future. And in that sense, the magicians are right, aren't they? Verse 11, the thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. In that sense, they're right. Where they're wrong is in thinking that the gods don't dwell with flesh. Because there is a God who dwells with Daniel. And he can reveal such mysteries, as the rest of the story shows. In verse 12, the king, enraged by their impotence, sort of throws his toys out of the pram and demands that all of them be simply exterminated. It looks like Daniel's in serious danger. I mean, he is one of the wise men after all. But he doesn't panic. He prays and asks the God of heaven to reveal the mystery. And God does not disappoint. Look down with me at verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. He answered and said... Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. What the best of Babylon could not do, God does instantly. He can reveal the future. Of course he can, because he wrote the future. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He writes the script. And because he does... He can reveal what it says. He can tell us where the world is going. He gives wisdom to the wise. He gives knowledge to those who have understanding. When I was growing up, every few years, there'd be a, a new edition of Harry Potter coming out. And every time one was, one was due to be released, there'd be legions of people speculating about oh, what's going to happen in the new book. Ron and Hermione finally going to get together. Is Dumbledore maybe going to be killed off? Oh, who knows? Sometimes people would make quite good, could, could, quite good guesses, quite good predictions. But the only way to be absolutely sure was to wait for the book to be released, wait for J.K. Rowling to tell us. Because she was the only one who could decide. But the wise men of the world might make some good predictions from time to time, once they see which way the wind is blowing. But to actually reveal the future, you have to ask the author. You have to come to God. Only God can reveal the future. He gets to decide. All of which kind of begs the question, what kind of future does God reveal? If he's the one who uncovers such mysteries, 
What does he say about where the world is going? And that brings us to our second point. He reveals that only his kingdom rules the future. Occasionally on uh, long car journeys, my wife Hannah and I will listen to an audio book called A Little History of the World. It's actually about 10 hours long, so you know, it's not, not that little. But in verses 31 to 45, Daniel gives us, gives us a truly little history of the entire world. He begins by telling the king his dream. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The entire dream revolves around this enormous statue made of five different materials. I've put a picture on your handout so you can see what it might have looked like. We're told that the head was made of gold and that this represented King Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. The other materials all represent the kingdoms that will come after Nebuchadnezzar. And these kingdoms seem to have less splendor, but more strength. Verse 39 Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third, a kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. We're not told exactly which kingdom each material represents. The, the best guess is probably Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the kingdoms that came after Rome. Come and talk to me afterwards if you want to know why. But exactly what the kingdoms were doesn't really matter. The point is the same. None of these kingdoms will last Nebuchadnezzar might be the head of gold, but one day his kingdom will be replaced by another one, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. Because behind the scenes of history, the God of heaven is pulling the strings. Perhaps you noticed how Daniel slips that in in verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. The kings of the earth in all their splendor rule by his permission. And when he calls time on them, they're done. And one day he will replace them all with his own eternal kingdom. Look down with me at verse 44. And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. In the dream, Daniel, God represents his kingdom as a vast mountain 
one that fills the entire earth and that turns all the kingdoms that came before into chaff blown by the summer wind. Verse 34, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Unfortunately, I couldn't actually get hold of some real chaff for you this evening. They do actually sell it in Holland and Barrett as a sort of health product, but it's about 10 quid a bag, and I, I was a bit too stingy to actually fork out some. So I've got a sort of poor substitute here. Um, every morning, Hannah and I have porridge for breakfast, and you know, at the bottom of the porridge bag, there's usually kind of some oats that have been sort of tossed about a bit. They've been sort of crushed together. That, that's a bit like chaff. And I thought maybe, you know, that'd be good enough. So I've got some here with me. You can see it. It's not very substantial. If I I pour some out, I mean, all it takes is a little. And it's gone. William was convinced that this would give all of us hay fever. So if you're going to sneeze in the front row, I'm very sorry. Okay, apologize now. Look at verse 35 again. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. The kingdoms of the earth are no more permanent than this chaff. Babylon, Rome, Western civilization as we know it, When the God of heaven calls time, they're gone. But his kingdom, his kingdom will never pass away. And of course, from our perspective, we know he's right, don't we? Where is Babylon? Most of it lies buried beneath the sand of Iran. And what does survive sits behind glass in the British Museum. I actually went to see it a few weeks ago. There are huge rooms full of all the tablets describing the great deeds that Nebuchadnezzar achieved. And now look at them. Sat in a museum gathering dust. And one day the same thing will happen to Western society too. Assuming the Lord Jesus doesn't return before then. Perhaps there'll be a a Biden or a Trump sign in one of the exhibits. Maybe a, a piece of the gherkin or the cheese grater in another. Maybe they'll have a little display with a, you know, here is a CV of a, a typical city worker in the 21st century. And tourists will file past, barely bothering to look, more interested in finding the gift shop or the toilets. But God's kingdom, God's kingdom will never end. Again, that's probably easier for us to imagine today, isn't it, than it it might have been a few years ago. 
It wasn't that long ago that the, the end of the Cold War and the apparent triumph of liberal democracy made some people believe that the West would simply go on forever. Francis Fukuyama, an American political scientist, even published an article in the National Interest magazine called The End of History, where he wrote of the events of 1989. What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. We read those words 34 years later, and we're astonished by the arrogance to think that a little victory for the West for a few years, 10, maybe 20 years, could be the end of history. We see the empty folly of the world and its wisdom to a post-Brexit, post-Trump world, appalled by conflicts in Gaza and Ukraine, fearful of the rise of strongmen in Russia and China. The truth that God reveals in this passage is obvious, all too obvious, that the West isn't eternal that its foundations really are very shaky indeed. But one day it will fall. One more kingdom to come and go in the long march of human history. But God's kingdom, God's kingdom will never end. At the height of Roman strength, When all the kingdoms in this dream had come, his son, the Lord Jesus, was born. He was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God in heaven. His reign has been declared throughout the entire world. Look at the nations in this room represented here. Through countless years, countless kingdoms, his church has endured. Romans, Saxons, Vikings, Normans, Huns, Visigoths, Mongols, Turks, Crusades, revolutions, world wars, nuclear wars, presidents, prime ministers, tyrants, dictators. His church has outlived them all. And one day... He will come again on the clouds of heaven to establish his eternal reign upon the earth. Only God reveals the future. And the future he reveals is one where only his kingdom rules. So what does the wise person do? Go along with the world and its ways? get swept along by the tide, follow the herd, or stand firm in God and in his way. One of the reasons I find it hard sometimes to resist the world and its wisdom is that it feels like the future belongs to them. Those who trumpet its values even call themselves progressive 
as if the future were on their side. Going against them doesn't feel wise when you get passed up for that promotion at work because of your Christian values. When you get left out by your friends because you won't get drunk with them, it feels stupid. Why am I doing this? How can this be wise? But this passage shows us how. Because the future belongs to God. And all of Western society, everything that you or I might ever hope to gain by going along with the world and giving in with the pressure to conform, all of it is barely more than a footnote in his story. So, of course, the wise person is the one who listens to him and stands firm in his ways, no matter what the sacrifice. Maybe that's not you this evening. And if so, then can I invite you to reevaluate your life, your priorities? Maybe it is you. In which case, stand firm. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for revealing this one unchangeable, immutable, unassailable fact that the reign of Jesus Christ will never end. Help us to live our lives in light of that truth. In his name, amen.